Thank you, worship team, and uh, Sharon as well, and Paul for that uh, great uh, introduction and leading us into hearing God's Word. And uh, so we come before him today, and uh, before I start, let's pray for a second. God, we come before you today. I'm just very, very grateful for the opportunity to be the vessel by which your word goes out to your people. God, I pray that you would give me a strong and a clear voice, but more importantly, let your word um, reach the hearts of the people who are listening. I pray that people would hear and understand this word today and that uh, it would be planted into their hearts and their lives, God, for use today in the days and time to come. We give you thanks for your word, Lord God, and ask for a blessing upon it now in the name of Jesus. Amen. So our text comes to us today from Acts chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 to 16 from the New King James Version. Now Paul's already summarized that for the children, but here are the words from Scripture. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men, going ahead, waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up and broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even until daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day, we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost." So far, the reading of God's Word. Now, in the past, regarding this text, some pastors have preached and spoken against falling asleep in church. And others 
barely more legitimately, have warned about the danger of being asleep spiritually, being numb to spiritual things. Both approaches miss the most obvious thing in the text. A man dies and is brought back to life. They miss the real importance of this text. Whatever this text is about, it is not about falling asleep in church. Please don't do it today. No, something more is going on here. Did you notice that Paul speaks all night, and yet Luke does not record anything that Paul said? Luke only records what happened to Eutychus. Clearly, Luke considers this pretty important. In fact, this is the only event that Luke records in the space of half a year or more. Let's look at the text. We pick it up at verse 1, which begins, after the uproar had ceased. The Apostle Paul had been in the city of Ephesus for almost three years, and this happens in chapter 19. In what could be legitimately called a wildly successful ministry of the gospel, so many people, not just in Ephesus, but in the whole province of Asia, at that time Asia was a province, not a continent as we know it, have become Jesus followers and turned away from worshiping the goddess Artemis, whose temple was in Ephesus. As a result, craftsmen who make and sell Artemis statues find their bottom line being impacted. So they stir up a mob and cause a riot in the public square, a riot that lasts several hours. Finally, a city official gets them to call down, get them to calm down sends them home. This is the uproar at the beginning of chapter 20. Shortly after this uproar, Paul calls some of the Ephesian Christians together, gives them some final encouragement, bids them farewell, and sets off for Macedonia. Then, for five verses, all we read is travelogue, in which Luke, the writer of Acts, glosses over a period of six months or more, Paul goes to Macedonia, travels through the region, visiting and encouraging the churches there. Then he goes south into Greece and spends another three months there. Then he hears of a plot against his life and goes back to Macedonia and plans his departure for home in Antioch. But they do stay briefly in Philippi in Macedonia and then make a five-day voyage across the Aegean Sea to the city of Troas. And it is in Troas that this episode with Eutychus occurs. Now, jump ahead to verse 13. Paul leaves Troas and goes overland to Assos and then by ship to Mytilene. Then on three successive days, he sails on to Chios, Samos, and Miletus. That is a lot of travel. Over a pretty long period of time, Paul sees many cities in several provinces of the Roman Empire. He sees lots of people, says a lot of things in a lot of churches. Yet... The only thing that Luke records in all of that is this account of Eutychus. So we have to ask, why? Why did Luke include only this? And with our convictions about the Bible, what we're really asking is, why did God include this in his word? So, back to verse 7, where Paul comes to the city of Troas. He stays there for seven days. On the first day of the week we would call Sunday, Paul joins a gathering of Christians to break bread, 
which means they shared a meal including bread and wine, according to Jesus' instructions, that the disciples do this in remembrance of his crucified body and shed blood. During the evening, Paul begins to teach them. Again, Luke does not record what Paul says, but it's reasonable to assume that his teaching would parallel what we find in his written letters of the New Testament. Some theological teaching about uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus and its significance, and practical teaching on its implications for their day-to-day lives and relationships in Troas. But whatever the content of his teaching that night, Paul must have done a lot of it. And since he was planning to leave in the morning, he meant to deliver it all that night. It says in verse 7 that he continued his message until midnight. Now, it's hard enough to listen to a very long sermon during the day, but much harder at night, and it might have been harder that night. Consider that it may have been a fairly spacious room. Being on the third floor, we can assume a decent-sized house. But it is either a crowded enough that Eutychus sits in the window for space, or hot enough that he sits there for air, or both. In any event, it is less than comfortable. In verse 8, Luke adds the detail that there were many lamps. Think of open flames giving off heat and smoke in a room full of people. We're not talking about closed lanterns here. We're talking about torches. You can imagine everyone sweating in that smoke-filled room, and that would have added another element of discomfort. There's poor Eutychus, a young man or youth, who hitches himself onto the windowsill. The window, of course, is just a hole in the wall with the shutters open to let in some air. Eutychus is beginning to fight off sleep and is losing the battle. You know what it's like. Your eyelids start to flutter, you blink several times, you give your head a shake, hoping to wake the eyes up. Then you jerk awake and realize you've started dozing, and eventually you cross the line and just decide not to fight it anymore. You shift just a little to get a little more comfortable, and that's it. That's what happened to Eutychus as Paul talked on into the night. It is almost midnight. Sleep wins, and Eutychus loses. Now, Luke uses several phrases here, and it's almost comical to see these side by side in this passage, and maybe you can relate. First, Paul continued his message until midnight, and, verse 9 again, it says he continued speaking. Eutychus sank into a deep sleep and was overcome by sleep. Eutychus never had a chance to stay awake. Leaning a little against the side of the window, he shifts in his sleep, his shoulder slides off the side, and he is out the window. For two terrifying seconds, he falls three stories through the air and thuds onto the ground below. Not too many things will interrupt a church service faster than a sudden death. There are sudden gasps, horrified screams, and they all charge down the stairs. We don't know if Eutychus had any family in the room, but imagine the sick feeling in their stomachs as they rush outside, fearing the worst, and then discovering that the worst has happened. Verse 9, it says, the young man was taken up dead. Luke, being there, says we several times in the passage, and being a doctor certainly would not have mistaken this. We read over these verses in a few seconds, but all this takes place over minutes. 
And if Eutychus does have family there, which is entirely possible, these are the worst moments of their lives. Horrifying event. Then Paul pushes through the crowd, kneels down, wraps his arms around Eutychus and says to the people, do not trouble yourselves for his life is in him. And then he says, let's eat. What? Seems a little anticlimactic. You'd expect a sentence like, you know, they were all filled with joy and praised God. But we simply read, Paul said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had come up and broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even until daybreak, he departed. Luke adds this understatement. They brought in the young man alive and were not a little comforted. In a horrible freak accident, Eutychus dies and is raised to life. That is certainly more than a little comforting. With that and the story of Paul's visit in Troas ends, and it's such a great episode, a fun narrative to read and not without its humor. But the question remains, why is it here? Of, six, of Paul's six-month, 600-mile trek, why does Luke choose to record only this? Why does God make sure this story becomes part of his sacred word for Christians in all places for all time? We believe, of course, that nothing is omitted in, sorry, included in or omitted from Scripture without reason. So this is here for a purpose. God's got something in mind. Now we believe, too, that the Bible in its entirety is God's revelation concerning Jesus. So we ask, how does this Eutychus mishap and miracle turn the spotlight onto Jesus? God has a purpose, and this purpose concerns Jesus. Here's another way to ask the question. What would be missing from the Bible's testimony concerning Jesus if this story was not here? It's not the resurrection in and of itself. Other than Jesus' own resurrection, there are already three resurrections in the Gospels, two in Luke's and one already in the book of Acts. So why does Luke go through the trouble of recording a fourth one? The answer is found in the place where three scriptural dynamics converge. By this time in the Bible's witness of Jesus, or to Jesus, by this time in Luke's own writing, three factors are at play. And where they come together, we recognize why this passage is here. So let's bring these three things into view. First is Jesus' resurrection and its significance. Jesus was the kingdom bringer. He announced that the coming of God's kingdom, or the kingdom of heaven, was here. He taught what kingdom life looked like and made the realities of God's kingdom evident on earth. He healed, cast out demons, cared for the marginalized, raised the dead, and so on. Effectively, he said, God's kingdom is among you now on the earth, and I'm the king who is establishing this kingdom. Then in one weekend, he took on and defeated the two greatest enemies of God's kingdom, sin and death. He defeated sin by taking our sin upon his own shoulders and then receiving God's judgment for that sin. In other words, God took both the power of sin and the penalty for sin to the cross 
and died with it. So for those who are what the Bible calls in Christ, sin's power is broken in that we are empowered to live increasingly godly lives. And since penalty is no longer feared, for the penalty has already been paid, for those who choose to receive it, God will not punish a second time. On the cross, sin is defeated. At the resurrection, death is defeated. God raised Jesus from the dead. And the Bible says that that same power is at work in us, and we share in Christ's resurrection. So the enemies of God's kingdom have been dealt the death blow. And at the resurrection, it's like Jesus stuck a flag in the ground and said, I claim this world for God my Father. Rather than our waiting for some future experience of God's kingdom, Jesus' resurrection says decisively that God's kingdom is here. Eternity is broken into history and is advancing. As the book of Revelation says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Jesus' resurrection is the sign of God's eternal kingdom in the present, here on earth, here in history. When Jesus ascended to God the Father's side, it did not mean that the kingdom left too. His followers, under his authority and empowered by the Holy Spirit, carried the kingdom forward as they became Jesus' witnesses. So we see God's kingdom advancing in them. Sin repented of, people healed, demons exercised, hypocrisy judged, generosity revealed, and in Acts 9, which we will get to shortly, the dead raised. God's power exercised in raising Jesus from the dead is the same power at work in the church. His resurrection being the definitive sign of his kingdom. So that is the first dynamic at play by the time we get to Acts 20. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 1, where Luke says, In my first book, O Theophilus, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a little bit here. The next two factors have to do with Luke's writing. Who's he writing to? He's not just penning a gospel for general distribution. He has someone in mind and a purpose in writing it. Acts 1 verse 1 says, In my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. The, he's, he's writing this for Theophilus. Theophilus is a Gentile. What is the first book he refers to? Well, his gospel, the book of Luke. And he begins that book with these words. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Why is Luke writing these books to Theophilus? So his Gentile friend may have certainty concerning the things he has been taught. And Theophilus, we may be sure, has not 
merely been taught facts, but the significance of them. In other words, Luke is writing so Theophilus' faith in Jesus may be established on the firmest of foundations. Writing to a Gentile, Luke is very intentional about selecting and recording events which portray the gospel of Jesus as not for the Jews only, but an all-encompassing gospel for everyone. Tax collectors, Samaritans, prodigals, widows, children, and Gentiles. One unique feature of Luke's writings, for example, is that Roman centurions are always portrayed favorably. So it's no accident that when Luke writes Acts, out of all the ministry examples of the ministry activities of the Gospels, he includes the conversion of Samaritans, the conversion of the Ethiopian official, the Roman centurion Cornelius, and the explosion of Christianity in Syria. Luke's agenda is to shore up Theophilus' faith and reveal it as a faith for everyone, Jew and Gentile. It is for the Gentile Theophilus. That's the second dynamic at play when we get to our text. The third, we notice the shape of the book of Acts. Where Luke could have written much about the activities of the other apostles, he focuses on Peter, chapters 1 to 12. He has a few digressions in there that highlight his Gentile agenda. He shows the historic unbelief of the Jews and later the conversion of the Samaritans and then the gospel's impact in Antioch. Then from Acts 13 onward, Luke follows the apostle Paul on his Gentile mission. And it is striking how Peter's ministry in the Jewish world parallels that of Paul's in the Gentile world. Peter's ministry begins at Pentecost and his powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit of Christ. Paul's begins when he encounters the risen, glorified Christ. Both experience miraculous deliverances from prison. Both have encounters with magicians or sorcerers. At one point, if Peter's shadow falls on someone, they are healed. If a handkerchief Paul has used touches someone, they are healed. Both Peter and Paul lay hands on believers who have not yet experienced or receive the Holy Spirit. And in both cases, the Spirit comes on those people, Samaritans and Ephesians, respectively. For both, there are recorded accounts of, a man, of healing a man who was crippled from birth. Luke seems to be saying that the ministry of the gospel is no different for the Gentiles than it is for the Jews. What Peter does and experiences as an apostle of Christ for the Jews Paul does and experiences as an apostle to the Gentiles. So in summary, three things are significant. The resurrection is a sign of God's kingdom. Luke's purpose in writing is to shore up the faith of a Gentile in a gospel for the Gentiles. And there are parallels between the ministries of Peter and Paul. But one more example for you, and we go back to Acts chapter 9, verses 36 to 43. Luke records Tabitha's raising from death. Resurrection as a sign of the presence of God's kingdom is demonstrated in the ministry to the Jews. Peter's Jewish ministry, as recorded by Luke, culminates with the resurrection of Tabitha. 
So when we read through the account of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, we would expect and say there has to be a resurrection for the Gentiles, the definitive sign of God's kingdom in the Gentile world too. And in Acts 20, we have not Paul's teaching, but the raising of Eutychus from the dead. This is Paul's last recorded act of ministry before his arrest in Jerusalem in the next chapter. Eutychus's resurrection is the culmination of the formal record of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. So now we can answer the question, why is this story here? It's here to demonstrate conclusively that there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles in God's kingdom. Jesus died for the sin of the Jews and of the Gentiles. Resurrection work is at Sorry, resurrection power is at work in Jews and Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles share equally in the resurrection life of Jesus. Jews and Gentiles have equal status before God through faith in Jesus. The account is here, so Theophilus can be certain that God's love and grace expressed in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin is for him. But it is also for you, another Gentile. Now that may not be earth-shattering to you because we're used to the idea of Christianity being a world religion. But it was earth-shattering for the Jews who either rejected it outright and often violently or in the case of the early church had to be convinced by God's own active intervention that Jesus was not only for them, And it was earth-shattering to the Gentiles who received this gospel, this great news, with great joy. Now, 2,000 years later, we worship together as a group of Gentiles who have received the same gospel. The kingdom of God has come to us. The forgiveness of sins by Jesus' death and resurrection. The kingdom is for us. We become part of the people of God. So the question that I ask us is this. Are you certain of the things you've been taught? That includes, as it did for Theophilus, certainty of the facts, the trustworthiness of the Bible as God's Word, that Jesus really is the Son of God, who really was crucified and rose again, and in Him we find everlasting life. What have we been taught? First, the forgiveness of sins. We speak of it and sing of it so easily and have no trouble affirming the forgiveness of sins by the faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus for other people. But do you believe that your sins are forgiven? Or can be if you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus. And by forgiven, we mean covered over, washed away completely, Do you believe that God really does not hold your sins against you? He will never dredge them up. That from His side, your sin, no matter what it is or what it was, has no impact on His loving relationship with you. Do you believe that the sins you committed this week were forgiven in Christ and were forgiven even before you committed them? Your ignoring of God when He was reminding you of Himself. Your burst of temper, 
your gossip, your criticisms, your, your slip into that old sin. We cannot help but sometimes feel that God shakes His head at us and wishes we would do better. And that He is disappointed in us. And that He will with sadness keep us at arm's length. That, frankly, is a lie from hell. That is not the gospel we say we believe. Do our sins impact our relationship with God? Yes, but from our end. It's we who remain at arm's length from God because we think we cannot presume on His love and His forgiveness. It is we who turn our backs momentarily, assuming that when we want to turn around and face God again, He's going to be wearing a frown. In other words, do we believe in the forgiveness of our sin? Let the true gospel be proclaimed to you so that you may be certain of what you have been taught. God gave His infinitely perfect Son to bear your punishment for your sin on the cross. You can lay hold of that forgiveness by trusting Him. We call that faith. But you cannot do anything to earn it or to be worthy of it. Therefore, you do not forfeit it by the sins you feel you still can't help but engage in. By your faith in Christ, God holds forgiveness in His heart for your sins, and you cannot remove that from His heart. The very thought of suddenly making God unmerciful is absurd. But we think it, don't we? It's so easy to think. The Apostle Paul wrote, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been taught that in Christ, God has drawn you into His kingdom, and there you are. The power God exercised in raising from Jesus from the dead is at work in you, not only to bring yourself to Him in Jesus, but to keep you there too. Sin has no power to remove you from God. Do you believe? Do you believe in the forgiveness of sin for you as much as for anybody? Do you believe in the kingdom of God? Do you believe that He reigns over you and your situation? Sometimes, and maybe all the time, you may feel as if circumstances have pushed you out the window, and there you lie on the pavement, broken and beyond salvage. You're stunned by what is taking place, fearful and uncertain of a new reality, a diagnosis, a death, a crisis, the prospect of a future filled with pain. Do you believe that God is able to put his arms around you and say, do not trouble yourself. There's still life here. In Christ, you do not just have a Savior and forgiveness of sin. In Christ, you've been brought into a kingdom. And in that kingdom is a perfect king. Perfect in his love perfect in His goodness, perfect in His sovereignty, perfect in power. In every facet of your life, He rules in perfect 
love. He can be trusted. Do you believe that? The story of Eutychus is a demonstration that God's power, as exercised in raising Jesus, is at work now, today. Not just in the closed circle of Jesus' few years on earth amongst the Jewish first century world. Not two days later, or two decades later in Troas, but and 2,000 years later at your house. Of this, you can be certain. Let's pray. God, thank you for that word. Thank you for the reminder that you are perfect in love and in everything that you are and that you can be trusted and that we have forgiveness of sins and we don't need to keep ourselves at arm length from you. And no matter where we are in our life, you've still got your arms around us saying, there's life there. Thank you, God, for your word and the truth of it. Bless us uh, as we hear this word and receive it and to end and hold on to it, God, in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.